I've been travelling for two years through um, Southeast Asia and through Africa and um, I had arrived on this small island on route back to New Zealand for my brother's wedding. This particular bay is called Tamarin Bay. It's a small fishing village on the coastline of Mauritius, just south of Port Louis. The most attractive thing about this island for me was surfing. Any surfers? <laughs> One, two, ooh, yes. Got two. I knew there's some surfers here in England somewhere. You're the first two. <laughs> They've been hiding. There's um, just a little, that's one of the most attractive parts of it, was that it was a good tube, it's a left hand barrel. <laughs> Breaking on coral reef, had three tube sections in the waves, just letting the surface know. And um, the local, local Creoles were very, very um, good fishermen, incredibly good um, surfers, and they were as black as you can get them, and I was as white as you can get them, but somehow we seemed to get on quite well. So the fishing boats we used to take out. Now the problem with surfing is that it sometimes is flat. That means there's no waves. <laughs> and so you've got to pick up something else. Um, windsurfing was a, was a great substitute, um, but not as good as surfing. And um, diving. I was an instructor in scuba. I had dived on many wrecks. Um, I was a qualified lifeguard. And basically the sea would become my, I suppose, escape or my kind of major pastime. I spend more time in the water or on the water or under the water to the point where my mother used to say, you've got fish blood in your son. <laughs> you should have been born a fish. And um, so I love the ocean and I've done a lot of diving, but most of my diving, of course, have been during the day. But these local Creole men had taught me to dive at night. Is any night divers here? One, two, oh, there's a number of you. About five or six. Those, for those who know nothing about night diving, I'll explain a little bit. Night diving is, um, so you don't think we're completely insane and all the six people who raise their hands are totally nuts. Night diving is, um, of course, dangerous in the sense that it's, there are sharks out there during the best of the time. But at night, we would go out on the outer reef and we'd dive off the outer reef with the local Creole fishermen. The first time I, they asked me to come diving, I thought they were crazy. I said, why do you dive at night? They said, oh, we not tell you, brother. I said, why not you tell me, huh? They said, you come diving and you see, mum. I said, um, okay. So I brought my diving torch because <laughs> oh, I was so fascinated I wanted to see and I went off diving. And um, the most fascinating thing was during the, during the day, lobster and the crabs hide in the reef. But at night, a phenomena happens is that they're nocturnal scavengers. So the lobster and the crab would come out and be walking right across the top of the reef. And so your torchlight would operate just like a spotlight and as soon as the torchlight would shine upon their eyes, the lobster would freeze, wouldn't move. If anyone's ever done any hunting, they know what I'm talking about at night. So they'd freeze and we would dive straight onto them with our leather gloves on, pick them up, up to the boat, throw them in. Great diving, isn't it? <laughs> Seems too easy, really, but there's still a little bit of skill you know, required in getting them, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> the other amazing thing about night diving is that the fish go to sleep. Remember the first time Simon, the Creole brother, that taught me how to night dive and called me over, he signaled for me to come over with his torch. As I came over, here was this 15-pound parrotfish lying on its side, sound asleep. 
He looked at me and smiled, <laughs> pulled his knife out, and bam, straight into the head. Now, I hope you're not vegetarian, so I'm sorry if you are. <laughs> I was for a couple of years, but... So anyhow, I um, killed the fish and went straight into the head with a knife. Took it up into the boat and threw it into the boat. And Simon turned to me and he said, Ian, uh, make sure, uh, when you kill fish, brother, you uh, hit the head, huh? No good you hit the body or the blood come from fish. Shark come for you, huh? And for me, man, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just worried to make sure that the young, you know, apprentice here would learn that you kill the fish, you don't wound the fish. So I learned that lesson. As I'm diving along, I remember, now the lagoon is really pretty, but when we're diving, it's, it's very, it drops off very steeply. 30,000, 40,000 fathoms in the deep ocean trenches. So we're right on the edge of a mountain, submerged mountain, basically. And I was looking out into the never-never, you know, out into the real dark part, just fascinated to see what was out there. Well, Simone came racing over, grabbed my torchlight, dragged me to the surface, and he said, uh, Ian, uh, not so good uh, do this with torchlight, brother. I said, uh, why not, Simone? He said, uh, wake up shark, huh? <laughs> well, he tuned me in pretty quickly, you know. I don't want to wake up Jaws 1, 2 and 3 out there. And, um, and so I just learned to keep my torchlight very, very restricted, like on the reef. <laughs> the other thing about night diving is that the reef, the coral reef in the tropics are very sharp. And so I used to wear a wetsuit, not because the water was cold. For me, the water was very hot. But I wore a wetsuit to keep myself from being cut on the reef. When you're diving at night, it's not that easy to see everything. Your torchlight is very restricted. You don't want a broad beam. You want a very narrow one. A bit like those Star Wars movies, those Jedi swords, you know, that's what it looks like underwater. And so you didn't want to brush against the reef. So I wore a thin wetsuit, very thin wetsuit, one mil, and my, and, but I left my forearms free. I didn't think I needed to put a full wetsuit on, it gets too hot. And so I had my, my wetsuit came to here. The other divers had full wetsuits on. They had full steamers, which was three to four mil, full suits, uh, leather gloves, rubber booties, and a rubber hood. Now you wonder why? Well, there were local men, they'd been raised in the tropics, and to them it was winter. Can you believe it? It felt like the Caribbean, you know, very, very hot water, beautifully hot, but to them it was cold. Some nights they go, oh, Ian, it's so cold tonight. I said, Simon, you're crazy, man. And he said, no, very cold for me, huh? And um, we'd die for three or four hours. We would get maybe 50, 60, sometimes 70 lobster. Um, number of para number of 15, maybe 20, 30 parrotfish, depending on how we did for a dive. Octopus, cuttlefish, some squid. We'd come in in the early hours of the morning, about three or four in the morning, wake up the chef from the local tourist hotel and begin to barter. This is their livelihood. We would bring this home. In fact, this is a dinner. Just I, I laid it out on the on the bench there just before we ate. About three in the morning, one night. This is what we'd bring home and eat. It's nothing like getting fresh seafood. Love this stuff, and including octopus. And so we were living like kings, and we were, we were, um, we were basically living, living in the tropics for a dollar a day in a three-bedroom bungalow on the beach, dollar US, and we were eating seafood like this. The tourists were paying 100 US a night down the road at a place full of mob, and we're having to pay on top of that for their menu. <laughs> now, I was a traveler. I'd learned how to travel very cheaply, and I'd been doing it for two years. I had four days to go before I was to leave the island, and Simon came to me, he said, Ian, you come diving tonight, man. I said, well, maybe, Simon, we look out. I looked out into, the, out into the sea, and I saw an electrical storm on the horizon. I said, Simon, not so good tonight, huh? He said, no, this one miss us, brother. Come, we go to a very special place near Black River, Rivier Noir. Please come with me tonight. You see the best diving in Mauritius. Like a good fisherman, threw the bait out. 
I caught it <laughs> and we went diving. As we dived in this particular night, the two divers went in before me and as I dived in, my torchlight picked up in the water this unusual looking jellyfish. Now it may not seem strange to you, but for me it was a little bit different in that it was box shaped. Torpedo shaped or bell shaped at the top, but then underneath it were like it was a box shape. It's not so clear in this photo, but it's the best I could find in an encyclopedia. Unbeknown to me, this is what is called a box jellyfish. Another name for it is sea wasp. The toxin of this particular jellyfish is lethal to man. It is killed in Australia, in Darwin alone, over 70 Australians. Last, I think a few years ago, it stopped a 38-year-old man in heart in 10 minutes. He was dead. Not knowing what was just swimming in front of me, in fascination, I reached out with my leather gloves and grabbed it just to see if it was a jellyfish. And sure enough, it swam off. Still not realising that I'd just seen the second deadliest poison toxin creature go before me, I continue to dive, looking for the lobster. As I'm looking for them, something smashes into my forearm like thousands of volts of electricity. I come from a farming kind of community and have had many electrical shocks off the, off the uh, electric fences on the farms. But this felt like standing with my gumboots off on wet concrete and grabbing hold of the mains unit. A massive bolt went through my arm. I quickly turned to see what on earth had hit me. There was no obvious scar, no obvious wound, but my arm felt like it was on fire. I looked out into the water and did not see the jellyfish. Still wondering what it was, I did the next worst thing and I rubbed it in. The only saving grace was that I put some Vaseline petroleum jelly over my forearms and face that night just to help kind of a um, bit of lubrication on my, underneath my mask. So I had at least a film of petroleum jelly which offered some form of protection from the actual tentacles. What, the, what it does is that the cells explode into your blood system and it's a constrictant and the poison then paralyzes them. Um, you go into coma and, and certain death. Not knowing what had happened, but knowing I'm in trouble, I start to make my way back to the boat. I get stung before I can get back to the boat and out onto the reef by three other box jellyfish. Two of them I see, two of them I don't. The local men came out, the local diver Simon came out of the, out of the water following me onto the outer reef. It was low tide and about two foot covering it. As I clambered up onto the reef, I saw my arm for the first time out of the water. My arm was double its normal size and where the tentacles of hit were like burn blisters right across my forearm. You've burned yourself on the stove and seen your skin swell up? Well, the whole of my arm was traced with like burn blisters. I thought, that's ridiculous. How could this thing burn your skin like that? As I'm standing there, perspiration is pouring off me, and I can feel the muscle tissue starting to react and almost in spasms as the poison goes deeper into my flesh. As I'm standing there, someone comes out of the reef out of the water and stands on the reef and is walking back towards me. As I'm standing there, I can feel the poison then move up through my blood system into my armpit and it hit my lymph node and it felt like someone had taken their fist and smashed it into my lymphatic system. It then moved into my right lung and began to constrict my breathing. Simon looked at me and, and, and I showed him my forearm. He said, kiss the and I showed him my forearm and he went, invisible. And I thought, invisible, invisible one, I went, we invisible, trying to respond to what they may call this jellyfish. He went, invisible, I went, okay, that might be it. He said, Ian, invisible, duck, Stephanie for you, huh? Who understands French? Then <laughs> one of these jellyfish hits you, Stephanie, it's finished, all over. 
He turned his torchlight onto his face, and I watched his face, literally blood drain from it. He said, Ian, how come you're not Norman? This one, kill you, brother. And I'm thinking, you think white men know everything, Simon? Not know this one. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, how many, man? How many? How many hit you, huh? I went, uh, cut. Four in Visavla. He went, impossible, impossible. Allez, allez, vitamin, cut your hospital. Allez, Ian, allez, man. And, and, and I understood in French, he was telling me, quickly now, you get out of here, we go where to? Hospital. Hospital, I'm standing on an outer reef, the hospital is up behind my village, but I'm a miles away from it. He grabs me and drags me back into the water and we swim out to the boat. The other diver comes alongside me and the young kid in the boat, who's keeping the boat off the reef, grabs my left arm and the two other divers try and roll me into the boat. As they're rolling me into the boat, my right arm is trailing in the water. As it comes up out of the water, I hit a fifth time. I honestly remember rolling in there and thinking to myself, what on earth have I done in my life to deserve this? How many would be wondering? Do you have the term payback? You reap what you sow? As I rolled in there thinking, how could I have been so bad? I then saw flash before me some of the things that I've done wrong in my life. How many have done a few things wrong in your life? How many have got things that you're embarrassed of, that are like skeletons in the closet? You know what I mean? Your conscience, you know you should never have done it, but you're stupid enough, somehow you ended up doing it. Okay, you may not you down to experience, but you carry a sense of a guilt or a shame with that. Well, I saw a whole bunch of things that I'd done personally in my life that I was ashamed of and embarrassed of flash before me. Well, it didn't really help me to know that maybe I deserved some of it. They dragged the boat over the reef and pushed it into the lagoon. Simon then pushed the boat off and I said, Simon, come with me, man. Help me, huh? He said, Ian, no, no motor. I got weight bounce. Let the young boy take you to shore quickly now. And he yelled in French to the young boy. And I said, Simon, my arm, what can I do for my forearm? And he motioned with his finger to urinate on, on my forearm. And I thought, if you're going to urinate on your arm, maybe that's some form of help, but it's pretty heavy, kind of. <laughs> pretty embarrassing, too. It's the middle of the night. My wetsuit was constricting my breathing. I pulled my wetsuit off and tried to urinate on my forearm. I found myself completely dehydrated. I couldn't. When we dive, we always have a bottle of Coke or water in the bow just to try and get rid of the snorkel taste because it's a foul taste. You're sucking on the snorkel for three or four hours. And so I grabbed it, drank it, perspiration flooded through my system and I was able to gently urinate and rub that in, the urine into my forearm because I thought maybe this will nullify some of the toxin. I then, then I got my, my sweats on and I sat in the stern of the boat as quietly as possible. I knew as a lifeguard and I knew as a diver that I needed to have antitoxin and I needed hospitalisation as soon as possible. I knew that if I got excited or had an adrenaline rush, what would happen is that my heart would pump my blood which would contain the poison around me. If it hit my vital organs, I'd be dead. The poison was already moving far too quickly for me. As I got halfway to shore, I found the poison moved down my left-hand side and found someone that smashed me in my kidneys as it doubled me back in the, in, the, in the stern of the boat. It then continued to move and I could feel it moving and numbing out my right leg as I continued to get to shore. The boat hit the shore and the young kid motioned for me to stand up and he was going to help me. As I stood up, I found myself collapsed into the bottom of the boat. My whole right side seemed to have gone numb. He then grabbed me, I grabbed his neck, grabbed my paralysed right arm and he dragged me out 
up the sandy coral beach, up through the coconut plantation, up onto the main road in Rivière-Noir. Now I've got a real long story and I don't have time to go into intricate detail. I'm going to jump some of the detail and try and get to the real core of, the, core of what the experience was. Okay? This young kid panicked when he got me up onto the road and pointed back to the ocean and went my fresh to La Plage. I tried to get him to get an ambulance, a hospital, a telephone, anything, and he took off, leaving me half paralysed and half dead there. The poison was so quick that I literally started to slip into a coma which would have been certain death. As I'm just about to close my eyes, not realising what's happening, a quiet and a gentle voice said, Son, if you close your eyes, you shall never awake again. Wait, what? There's no one there, but the voice was so clear. I thought about it. I thought, you can't close your eyes. You've got to get to a hospital. Man, that poison was so quick. I would have died within 10 minutes like everyone else had I not heard that quiet voice literally sh shake me to fight. It was like a, a turning point. I stood and fought the poison myself. I was able to balance my, my right leg and I, and, I, and I went down the road looking for help. I found three East Indian taxi, taxis there with the taxi drivers just talking to themselves. I asked them, will you please take me to the hospital, I'm dying. They said, uh, can, can I, we have French clients. I said, I'll give you money. They said, uh, how much money you give, white boy? I said, I'll give you 50 US, 100 US, anything. Please take me to the hospital. They said, you show us your money, white boy, we take you in a taxi, huh? I said, look, I don't have the money, and three of them walked away laughing, thinking it was a huge joke. I heard a quiet voice say, son, are you willing to beg for your life? I thought, yes. My left leg was getting weak, so I fell to my knees, I bowed my head, cupped my hands, and begged for my life. Two of them walked away, the third one, with some kind of compassion, came and helped me to my feet, put me in the taxi, and we drove to the hospital. We'd be going about two miles down the road and he started asking me how he's going to get his 50 US dollars. I said, man, don't worry about it, I'll get it, get it for you. And he got angry with me. He said, what hotel are you stay in? I said, I stay in a bungalow in Tamarind Bay. He said, oh, I dropped you, Tamarind Bay Hotel, huh? Tamarind Bay Hotel, you tourists, they look after you. And I'm pleading with them not to. He pulls out in front of the Tamarind Bay Hotel, the village I'm staying in, and commands me to get out. He starts swearing at me. He undoes my safety belt, leans over and undoes the passenger door and commands me to get out. I try and lift my left leg, I can't. He grabs my shoulder and shoves me straight out of the taxi onto the ground. I remember looking up to watch him try and drive away, but he couldn't because my feet were caught in the door sill. He cups my feet up in his hands, throws them onto the ground, shuts the door and drives off and leaves me for dead. As I'm lying there thinking about just giving it all up, I thought if your number's up, do the world a favour, die. I didn't think I was afraid of dying, I thought if it's happening, just close your eyes son. And I'm lying there thinking of that and the security guard finds me on the ground, half paralysed. He runs over and it's a familiar friend, it's Danielle. He goes, Ian, what's happening with your mum? Look at you, huh? how come you're so out of it like this on the ground? He thought I was stoned or something, got drunk. And he came running over and I showed him my forearm. As soon as I showed him my forearm, he went, Invisabla, you die with some wine tonight. I said, oui, he said, pas bon, invisabla, safe for you. He got the gift of encouragement. <laughs> he just scooped me up in his arms and raced me into the, into the hotel. 
All the tourists had gone to bed, and I remember him carrying me past the swimming pool, running with me in his arms. The three Chinese that, were, that owned the hotel, I knew them, and they knew me, looked, and they were playing poker or mahjong and drinking whiskey by the pool. Danielle dropped me in a chair right next to them. These men looked at me and said, what's wrong with you, white man? You're drunk. I said, I need hospitalization. I need hospitalization. Invisabla. They didn't understand. I pulled my sleeve up and showed them my forearm. And the young Chinese boy looked. He went, he stood up and he went, oh, silly white boy, how come you put the needle in the arm now? Oh, old man, opium. With a pipe, how come you're so stupid you put the needle in the arm now? Cannot help you, what? Sat down. Thought the marks on my arm were from heroin. I sat there wondering what I was going to do to try and convince them that it wasn't heroin, it was a jellyfish. And my forearm started to twitch and go into contractions. Next minute my whole body started to go out into muscular contractions. This, this, uh, these three Indians, tried to the three Chinese men, jumped up and ran over and tried to hold me physically down. I was throwing them off. I felt an incredible ice-cold feeling sweep over my body as, as I, I felt death sweep through me. I said, I'm freezing. Please put blankets on me, please. They got blankets from the rooms and started putting them on me. An old man, the old Chinese man, ran back with a glass of milk and tried to force it down my, my mouth, thinking I'd ingested a poison. That's why my, my reaction, not realizing it was in my blood system. As I'm looking at them and, and wondering what's going to happen next, I feel a deathly cold chill go right into my bone marrow in both feet. I can feel ice-cold necrosis coming right into the core of my being. I'm sitting there. I studied veterinary science at university when I, when I completed my degree in agriculture. But it does not help to be an intellectual and know how your body dies and you can't do a thing about it. I knew that I was in another stage of death and I was in serious trouble. I looked out into the car park and saw one car in the hotel car park. I knew it belonged to this Chinese man who was standing next to me. I looked him in the eye and said, Sir, please help me. Please help me and take me in your car to the hospital or I'll die. He put his hand on my shoulder. He looked at the car and said, Oh, my car, no, no, no. Cannot laugh. Wait for ambulance for you, huh? How come you're so worried, white boy? Don't worry, huh? Don't worry. No, no, no. Cannot laugh. My car cannot laugh. I couldn't believe what my ears were hearing. Have you ever felt like hurting someone? You ever felt like hitting someone? I mean, I came so close to hitting this man it wasn't funny, but I knew that if I hit him, the adrenaline rush could kill me. I, I turned away so I didn't have to look at his face anymore, because I knew if I did, I might lose my self-control and try and hit him. I looked away and thought, man, if I get through this, you're history. <laughs> I'm going to teach you a lesson in humanity you'll never forget. What to do with a dying man and what not to do. I'm here contemplating what I could do with this man to educate him about humanity. And Danielle appears out of nowhere with another security guard, grabs me and races me towards the hotel entrance. To my amazement, here comes an ambulance. Danielle had run one. <laughs> they get me into an ambulance and take off to the hospital. As they race me to the hospital... My eye, before my eyes, I start to see a small, snowy-headed young boy, and then it got a bit older. And I'm wondering, what's this? It's like a video clip. And then I suddenly realize that the boy that I'm looking at is myself. I am seeing my own life flash before me. As I'm looking at this, 
I am confronted really for the first time, is there life after death? Am I going to die? And I mean, it was shaking me to the core. You know what I mean? Is this real? Am I going to die? And as I'm thinking about that, I see a clear picture like in a vision of my mother and it looks as though she's praying for me. As I'm looking at her, she's speaking to me and saying, Ian, no matter how far you may find yourself from God, if you will but cry out to God from your heart, God will hear you and God will forgive you. As I heard what she said, I thought in my heart, I am a million miles away from anything godly. I know. And then I thought, which God do you cry out to? I had seen thousands of them in the East. And I'm looking, wondering what God, my mother's face reappears and I realize that my mother has only ever prayed to a Christian God. My mother is the only believer in our entire family. And as I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, what Christian prayer could a man pray, if it is a Christian God, that could, you, before you die? As a child, my mother had only ever taught me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. As a child, I'd prayed that many, many times. As a later, I thought, I'll pray that. That's the only Christian prayer that I've ever learnt. And as I lay there trying to think of the Lord's Prayer, my mind went completely blank and I could not remember it. My mother's face continuing to appear said, Son, pray from your heart. I'm thinking, Mum, my heart is like stone. You could strike a match on it. And I lay there and said, God, if you're real and this is real, help me to pray the only Christian prayer that I've ever been taught. If there's anything soft left in my heart, if there's anything good left in there, please help me to remember the Lord's Prayer. As I said that, words immediately appeared before my eyes. The first words that appeared were, forgive us our sins. I thought, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. But it's not in the right order. But I thought, well, that's what I've got. I'll try and pray it. I, I, I realized, I said, God, I feel a million miles away from you. If you're real and you can hear me, I ask you sincerely from my heart to forgive me of every evil and wicked thing I've ever done in my life. I feel like a hypocrite in praying to you on my deathbed. I do not have time to list all the sins I've committed because I am dying. But if you can, please forgive me of every evil deed I've ever committed. I prayed that sincerely in the depth of my heart. Those words disappeared and a new set of words came up. It said, forgive those who have sinned against you. As I saw those words, I thought, that's easy. I've never by nature been an aggressive or, or an, uh, an angry kind of person. I thought, I can forgive people. It's easy to do. As I said that, the face of the Indian taxi driver appeared before me. <laughs> I thought to myself, what is he doing here? And the voice said, will you forgive him for pushing you out of his taxi tonight and leaving you for dead in front of the hotel? Oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> Wasn't planning to. <laughs> I mean, I had no plans for that one. Before I could think too much more about him, up came the Chinese man. 
And the voice said, will you forgive him? I don't believe it. I suddenly realised that this wasn't just a head trip prayer. This is where the rubber meets the road. I realised that this wasn't Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Sorry, kids. But I thought this might be actually real. This wasn't some adult's kind of fantasy land. This actually could be true. The trouble was, these men's faces would not disappear until from my heart I forgave them. I could get no more of the prayer. I lay there and said, God, if you can forgive me of my sins... I will forgive these men what they have done to me. I will never touch them. I will never lay hands upon them and seek no vengeance. Their faces immediately disappeared as though someone had heard what I said. More words appeared. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I saw those words, I thought, God, I have been doing my own thing for 24 years. Does that mean I have got to literally humble myself and turn over the reins to you? I felt God say yes. I said, God, I do not know what your will is for me. I know I am not living it at this point in my life. But if I come through this experience, I will sincerely find out what your will is and try and accomplish it all the days of my life. The rest of the prayer came, but they were the three most important aspects of the prayer that I remember. I prayed the whole prayer for the first time in my life and felt an incredible peace inside my heart yet I was still dying physically. The ambulance door opened and they raced me into the hospital in a wheelchair. The nurses took my blood pressure and could barely find a pulse. The doctors saw my blood pressure results and saw the condition that I was in and what had happened to me when I explained to them about the jellyfish and they raced me down a corridor. I was surrounded by doctors and nurses and orderlies and the old doctor, Indian doctor, crouched in front of me and said, "Son." I do not know if you can hear me or understand me, but I am going to try and save your life. Now try and keep your eyes open. Well, I heard that way back on the road. <laughs> I am fighting to keep my eyes open. He put a drip feed in. He said, drip feed for dehydration. Four needles went in. Antitoxins. He's talking to me. He said, Some, come on, son, fight. Antitoxins for the poison. Another nurse was smashing my hand like this and lifting my skin up. And I thought, what's she doing? She smashed it again and lifted my skin up again. Nurse behind her passed the syringe, I think we use on the farm for horses, coming down towards me. I thought, that's what they're doing. They're trying to get a vein. Eventually went in there, stuck it between my second and third finger, and I watched my vein blow up like a bubble as the liquid and fluid went into it. The trouble was it wasn't moving anywhere, but the nurse was so nervous I could see her moving the needle from side to side of my vein, shaking. I thought if she doesn't watch out, she'll tear it open. The doctor nods, a third one goes in, second one goes in, and a third one. My entire vein blows right up past my wrist. This nurse then tries to manually massage it up into my forearm. It seems to be rolling off a thumb and forefinger, and she can't seem to get it to move. I'm sitting there wondering why isn't it moving as the nurse and the doctor are non-verbally trying to communicate <laughs> what they're going to do next. I thought, it's not moving. Maybe the shock has caused my veins to collapse and they can't seem to get it into my body. Are there any nurses or doctors out here? A few. It's a very, very terrifying thing when the doctor then turned back to me and said, Son, I'm afraid that's all we can do for you. Just try and fight to stay alive. With the orderlies, they lifted me up and put me on a bed. I purposed in my heart and mind to keep my eyes open all night, not go to sleep and fight the poison and break the back of it. I thought, I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm not going to slip into a coma. I'm not going to die. 
I lay there with all my willpower, all my strength, mustered and keeping my eyes open, and perspiration started to pour into my eyes. I thought, What's, where's that coming from? Then I thought, the, the drip feed's bringing back fluid. Trouble is, it's, block, it's blurring my vision. I try to speak, Doctor, please come back and wipe my forehead, I can't see. My lips wouldn't move, the paralysis had set into my jaw. I then tried to lift my right and my left arm up so I could clear my eyes and continue to see. Neither arm would respond to the mental direction I was giving it. I then tried to tilt my head to the right or to the left so that I could at least drain one eye from the perspiration and continue to see, hoping that a doctor would become aware of my predicament and come back. My head wouldn't tilt. I then tried to, with my eyelids, squeeze the perspiration just by squeezing my eyes. As I did that, it helped a bit, but my eyes got heavier and heavier as I lay there. I thought to myself, I'm going to have to take a few minutes break and a few minutes rest, otherwise I can't keep doing this. So I thought I'll take five or ten minutes sleep and then I'll wake up and fight again for my life. I closed my eyes, sighed out a sigh of relief, and felt an incredible release, as though I did not have to fight for my life anymore. The trouble was, I realized that as I closed my eyes and breathed out, life passed from me. And for a period of 15 minutes, from what I can understand, I was pronounced clinically dead. Now in that period of 15 minutes, I'll try and explain what I saw. Because when I came back, I was in a completely different part of the hospital with a white sheet on me. It looked like a morgue or something or some kind of place. It's certainly not where I went to sleep in. With a doctor treating me like a dead piece of meat. Totally oblivious that I was now awake looking at him. (laughs) And when he actually saw me looking at him, we had an interesting reaction. (laughs) But we'll get on to that if you just kind of hang in with me. I closed my eyes. Now, it was so sudden, I'd been floating away all the way to the hospital in the ambulance, but I'm, I didn't want to float away. You know what I mean? Talk about people floating away. I was hanging on. So when I actually did relax and close my eyes, I was immediately gone. Trouble was, I did not know I was dead. I thought I was alive and was now waking up from sleep. I was not sure how long I'd been asleep for, but now I was awake. The thing that seemed strange to me was that I was standing upright instead of lying down. The other strange thing that occurred to me immediately was that the room was pitch black. My first thought was, why did the doctors, why did the doctors turn the lights out? I mean, if you leave a patient and then turn the lights out, that's enough to terrify him who wakes up. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe my eyes need to get adjusted to the dark. That's the reason why it's so dark here. And so I waited for a few moments to let my eyes get accustomed and I looked around, 360 degree, I could see no light. Now even in a dark place you can normally see some form of light. As a night diver I'm not afraid of the dark, but I could not see one slither of light in the entire place I was in. I thought, well don't, don't worry, turn the light switch on. So I put my hand out and my foot out and I crept out into the dark trying to find a wall. I thought if I find a wall, I'll turn a switch on. Being unable to find a wall about 10 feet away, I, th- I stopped and thought, well, maybe they've moved me into the general ward. That explains it. I'm walking down the middle of the hospital's general ward. What should I do? Go back to your bed, 
Yeah, turn the lamp on. Lamps are always next to the hospital beds. So I went back towards the hospital beds, I thought, looking for the lampstand. I thought, I've gone past my bed. You know, I'm groping around, I think, I've gone too far. I thought, now you've lost your bed, you fool. <laughs> so I'm going in front of me and behind me, searching for something like a hospital bed to touch. Anything, any piece of furniture. I can't seem to touch a thing, so I stop and think, it's so dark in here, I can't see my hand in front of my face. So as I thought that thought, I brought my hand up towards my face, it has seemed to pass into my face and straight through the other side. And when it's not that dark, you can't see your face. Come on, two hands. <laughs> you can't miss it. I brought two hands up and went straight through my head as though I had no physical head. Impossible. I went for my arm, passed through my arm, through my torso, out the other side. I went, where are my hands? I went straight through, both hands. I could not touch one part of my physical form and you had the total sensation of a human being. In that split second in time I thought, where on earth am I? As I began to think that, I could feel the most eerie, evil feeling in the dark. As though it wasn't just a physical darkness around me, but I was in a void of spiritual darkness. I had, as, I had numbers of times in my life felt the presence of evil. Ever felt when you're walking home at night, someone looking at you, but you can't see them? Hmm. Well, I felt like there were a lot of people looking at me. I couldn't see them surrounding me. I could feel the evil and the encroaching darkness moving towards me, and I was getting frightened. A voice yelled out and screamed in a very guttural voice to my right and said, Shut up! I said, I said, nothing! Sorry, because I don't want to scare you. I went up and lifted my hand up. I pulled back, and a voice over to my left said, You deserve to be here! I went, Deserve to be where? And the voice in front of me said, You're in hell! Now shut up! Well, I just got told, didn't I? Many people say, I don't believe in that place. Well, it's too late when you find yourself in it. I stood there. I had physical arms that have gone like that. I thought quickly to myself, I thought I had prayed in the ambulance. The moment that thought was going through my mind, a brilliant light shone through the darkness directly onto my face. As I looked at it, I was immediately translated out of this darkness and up into this most glorious light. This is where it gets good. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, that put, that's put the wind up me and the fear of God in me for eternity. That short touch with a pit of darkness. As I, as I was being brought up in this incredibly radiant light, I could see the, to the right and to the left the darkness fading off as the light seemed to emanate off and as I stared up I felt like I was a speck of dust being drawn up into an incredible intensely radiant light, almost like the intensity of laser. As I moved up I could see a huge opening appearing before me and I was being drawn up into it. As I moved into this opening I looked down the length of this long tunnel and I could see the source of the light. As I looked down the length of this tunnel, a brilliant wave of light broke off the end and moved up the tunnel as if to greet me. As this wave moved along the tunnel towards me, it touched me, passed into me, and an incredible sensation of warmth and comfort flooded my spirit. Not ever any fear 
or darkness seem to be literally passed from me and pushed back into the darkness from behind, you know, behind me. As I passed through that light, I thought, that light's living. It's not just physical, it is giving off a living emotion. As I continued to look along the length of the tunnel, another wave of light broke off in thicker intensity and moved up the tunnel towards me. I thought, I wonder what this is. As it moved towards me, it touched me, passed into me, and I felt the most incredible sensation of peace flowed through my entire being. I could feel a living, liquid peace flow through me. I went, man, that feels good. I've searched for peace of mind in education, in sport, in travel. How many have sought peace of mind? Some kind of peace. <laughs> Pure peace flooded through me and remained in me. I thought, man, maybe in this light I can see what I look like as I pass through it. In the darkness I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Maybe I can see what I look like in the light. And I turned my head to the right and saw a near transparent arm of light. It was a human form, but it was like a spirit form. Again, words do not do justice to it, but you could see straight through it. I thought, I don't want to stop here. I want to go to the end and see more. My eyes were literally seeing the opening getting bigger and I was being drawn towards it. It looked like a mountain of the most spectacular diamonds in the world, radiating out all the facets of the splendorous light off, off it. And I was looking straight into it. I thought, man, what's this going to be? Another wave of light broke off and moved up. This time I had the sensation of pure joy and incredible excitement welled up in my heart. And as a New Zealander would say, I was amped up to the max. <laughs> I was cranking on it. I mean, every part of me was literally about to go over the top. I was literally firing. As, as every part of me was had an expectation that what I was going to see next would be the most awesome thing a man could possibly see. And I mean, I had it going on inside. I'm going, yes! And I came out of this tunnel and stopped. And where I'd been restricted in my view by the shape of the tunnel, now I came out into unrestricted view of this light. This light emanated from a central source or pivotal point out to the extremity of my vision. Radiant light and power and incredible beauty seemed to emanate to my right, to my left, above me. I'm standing and it looks like you've come to the hub of the entire universe, like the centre of all the constellations, the focal point of life and light and power was seeming before me. As I stood there, the centre seemed brighter and more radiant than the outer, the outer extremities. And I thought to myself, could there possibly be a person standing inside the centre of this light, surrounded by this radiance? Or is this just an innate power, an impersonal force of good in the universe and I have just come into the presence of it? You know, the yin and yang or Eastern mysticism teaching. That this is just a force, not a person. As I stood there thinking in my heart that question, a voice responded from within the centre and said, Ian, do you wish to return? I thought, return? Where am I? I looked back. Behind me was a tunnel going back into darkness. I thought to myself, darkness, hospital bed, body. 
Am I out of my physical form and this is real? I quickly look back, everything seemed to be real. It seemed as though this could be reality. I looked back and said, I do not know where I am. If I am out of my physical form, I wish to return. The voice then spoke to me and said, Ian, if you wish to return, you must see in a new light. I thought, light, light, you are the light. If you are the light, you might be God. Words appeared, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As I read these words, I realized that directly behind that light and in the center must be standing Almighty God. When I thought that, I thought, if that's God, what am I doing here? Someone's made a mistake. I should crawl out of here quickly. I should get under some rock or crawl back into the darkness where I belong. I started edging back from his presence. How many would wonder if you, someone had made a mistake if you were taken up into the presence of God tonight? You know you can put a mask or a masquerade up before people. Well, I'll tell you what, in his presence... You're undone. He knew my name. My thought was a speech to him. And I knew his radiant light could search the most inner secrets of my heart. And I knew that if he could see me in that light, he would know the good and the evil that I'd committed. And I did not feel very worthy and very holy or very pure to stand in his presence that night. I felt ashamed and I felt like I needed to pull back from his presence. As I pulled back from his presence, waves of light broke off his source and moved towards me. As the wave, first wave moved, my hand started to, I could feel a tingling sensation as a power moved through me, went down to the depth of my heart and I felt pure love touch me. What was that? Another wave came. God, you can't love me. Another wave go. So God, I've cursed you. Another wave go. See, God, I've done so many things wrong. Another wave. Another wave. Another wave. I started to tell God every single sin that I knew I'd done that was wrong. And as I said that, his unconditional acceptance flooded into me. I said, God, I feel disgusted. More love. You've got to realise, I'd just prayed. More love started flooding in. I knew what lust was. I knew what sensuality was. But I tell you what, this was pure love. No strings attached. In the presence of this love, literally began to touch the depth of who I was. I stood there and these waves continued in their intensity and power until I could not even speak. All I could do was just receive as he literally filled me up to overflowing with his presence and love. Every part of me seemed to be coming back to life. Where it felt like a burnt out shell of a man, his presence began to fill up and literally heal my inner man. 
as I stood there, I thought to myself, God, if you can love me so much, can I possibly step in and see you? Somehow, if I could step into the light and I could see you, you could tell me the meaning and truth to life and I would know who God was. I asked that question in my heart, God, can I see you? He didn't say no, and so I stepped into this radiance. As I stepped in, I was completely immersed in this radiant light and continued to walk in. Right in the centre, it opened up. As it opened up, the first thing I saw was a, was a man's feet, bare feet, with dazzling white garments around his ankles. I quickly lifted my eyes up and saw the most radiant garment on a man. I looked up and saw the chest, chest. His arms were out like this. As I looked towards his face, his face literally was emanating the most radiant, most powerful light. It seemed to be coming from the pores of his skin as, as this radiance and purity seemed to emanate and hide his entire face and features. It seemed like the light that was coming from his face was so much brighter and so much more intense that it made the light that surrounded him look dull. As I stood there, I thought, that must be God. Who could have a face that shines ten times brighter than the sun, has garments that are like garments of light, and is surrounded by a radiance that seems to fill the universe? As I walked closer, wanting to see his eyes and his form, I could see his hair, white, blowing like in a breeze, but his face still seemed to be shrouded by this brilliance. I moved closer and closer, wanting to see more. I came up literally within two feet from him, about to penetrate the light to see his face. It seemed as though he didn't want me to see his face, because he moved. As he moved to one side, the light that was around him moved with him, and directly behind him, the same shape as the tunnel I travelled down, was a brand, like, like a cave entrance, opening out into a brand new planet. As I stood there, I looked, two feet in front of me, I saw green grass moving off into a distance, and I could see a crystal clear stream, trees on either side of it. I moved over to the right, I saw meadows and fields going off into rolling green hills, mountains, clear skies. I moved over to my left. I saw fields and flowers and trees scattered through it. As I looked, every part of me is going, what is this place? It's like, it's like the Garden of Eden or what is this? And I looked at the grass, I saw no ragwort, no thistle, no buttercup, no, no, nothing that we used to spray for in New Zealand on the farm. And I'm looking and it's perfect, there's no rust, no disease, no death in the pastures. The rye grass is waving in like a gentle breeze and the light that was upon the presence of God is emanating right through the creation. The whole of the planet's creation seems to be giving off life and light. As I'm staring at it, everything in my heart is going, I belong here. Why wasn't I born here in the first place? Why did I always feel like a stranger on this planet, almost like an alien? Why wasn't I born there? God showed me later, you have to be born again. I used to be in to save the planet and save the whale. Well, here I saw a brand new creation, totally untouched, going before me. In me, I knew that if I stepped in, there'd be no more death, no more sickness, no more suffering, that I was standing at the threshold of eternity. 
I'm just about to enter in and explore. I mean, everything in me is just restrained not to step in and explore. An incredible excitement in me. And his radiance and presence seems to come before me as if to block the way. I thought, why is he blocking the way? Then he spoke to me. Within the light, he said, Ian, now that you've seen, do you wish to step in or do you wish to return? What would you do? Somehow, by a deathbed prayer, I come into the presence of God and I was standing at the threshold of eternity and I knew that if I entered in there, there would be no more, no, no more suffering. Or come back to here. Apocalypse now. <laughs> I mean, you have to be stupid to figure out that this plane is kind of doing a little bit of a nosedive. I mean, I am I'm thinking, return back? No, I don't want to return back. I wish to step in. He didn't move. I thought he needs more convincing. I said, God, I am not married. I have got no children and no responsibility to come back for. At the time, I wasn't. He still didn't move. I said, God, I have got no mortgage. I owe no one, anyone, anything. No bank manager chasing me. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm not going to leave debt. Look, there's nothing to return for. He still didn't move. And I stood there and said, God, you're the first one who has unconditionally loved and accepted me. In my life, I have never known anyone on earth who has loved me like you have. Your love has touched the depths of my heart. Your love and presence has melted my heart of stone. You've touched me like no one has ever touched me before. I want to be with you and stay with you. I don't want to return. He still didn't move. I thought, right, I'm going to say goodbye to this cruel world, look back, and then step in. I knew that if he loved me that much, he would allow me to step past his presence into eternity. I looked back, and as soon as I looked back to say goodbye, cruel world, in a clear vision next to the tunnel was my mother. As I saw her, I realized that there was one person on this earth that had loved me. And that was my dear mother. Not only had she loved me, but she had prayed for me every day of my life and tried to show this young, stubborn, arrogant young man that God was real. And I said, Mum, science and evolution, all this proves it's wrong. And my mother said, Son, I'm praying for you. I love you. And I realised her face had appeared in an ambulance that night and given me the opportunity to respond to God. And I thought to myself, if I stepped through into heaven tonight, I knew I would never be able to communicate with her the fact that I had made it. And I thought, how could I selfishly do that and leave my mother to bury my corpse and think for all intents and purposes that her son went to hell without any faith, without any belief in God. And I looked back at her and thought, I can't cause her any more suffering. I wish to return, and I turned back to God and said, God, I wish to return to tell my mother that what she believes in is real. I do not know how I came here, but if I go back, I will find out where this place is, and I will come back again, whether anyone believes me or not. And whether you believe me or not, I know that if I was to die right now, I'd be in the presence of God and step through. As I stood there, God said to me, Son, if you wish to return, you must see things in a new light. 
I thought, new light, things are new light. Ah, I must see through the light of love, the light of your presence and spirit, the light of forgiveness and joy. I must see from an eternal perspective, not a temporary earthly perspective. I must see from the eyes of God, from his perspective, not mine. I said, God, how do I do that? I looked back, and next to my mother was a vision of my father, my brother and my sister, and literally thousands upon thousands of people whose faces seemed to fade into the distance because I couldn't recognize them. I said, God, who are they? He said, son, if you don't return, these people will most likely never have a chance to hear about me because they'll never step foot inside a church to find out. The fact that you're in a church tonight on a Thursday evening is a miracle for some of you. Many of you have said in your heart, I won't be a hypocrite and never come to church again. I was in exactly the same position. I looked back and said, God, I don't know these people. I love my mother. I desire to return for them. The Lord said, I love these people. I desire that they come in and be with me. I said, God, how do I return down a tunnel into darkness and back into my physical form. He said, son, tilt your head. Now feel a liquid drain from your eye. Now open your eye and see. I was lying back in my physical form in a moment in time with my head tilted, my right eye opened, with a sheet up around my mouth, looking down the length of my body, with an Indian doctor with my foot in the air and a scalpel or a sharp instrument prodding it like a dead piece of meat. Totally oblivious, I was looking at him. I am suddenly confronted with reality. Did I just see God? Did I just, what's going on here? What's this guy doing with my foot? And I'm suddenly trying to grip, grab it. You know, I think it would have been a lot easier if God had let me float down from his presence, down through the clouds, down through the hospital ceiling, and slip back into my physical body. I think it would have been a lot easier to handle. Now, some people have had that. But see, God spoke, and the worlds came into existence. God spoke, and I found myself back in my physical form. Trouble is, it was so quick and so sudden, I'm trying to grasp, but did I just see God? Do you know what I'm saying? Next minute, this Indian doctor, something seems to scare him. He looks at these two eyes under my one eye. I'm not moving much. His eyes, his blood drains from his face, it's like he's just seen the dead rise. And he freaks. I'm staring at him and he's almost with his eyes going, you are dead, I'm going, I'm alive. He's wanting to come and shut my eye and, you know... And I'm looking and going, God, what's happened? And the, and the voice of God spoke in my ear and said, Son, I've just given you your life back. What? What is that going to mean? Man, and I'm looking at this man and said, God, if that's true, this man doesn't know what's going on and I'm sick of looking at him. <laughs> He's scaring me. I want to tilt my head to the left. Can you give me the strength to tilt my head to the left? My head rolled to the left, this eye opened, and here, about where this front row is, was a door full of nurses and orderlies that had been trying to save my life, staring into this eye. As soon as they saw me, it had them, <laughs> all do different movements over here, and the Indian doctor still had my foot up in the air, frozen with his hand shaking. Well, I'm looking at this, realising that these folks didn't have anything to do with bringing my life back. You cannot bring a man back to life by holding on to his foot or gaping through the doorway of a room. <laughs> there was no man standing there with the electrical on the heart, shock treatment or kickstart, no one doing CPR mouth to mouth. There's not one person anywhere near my bed. As I lay there, I rolled my head back to the centre and said, God, 
I used to say, if I see you, I believe. I believe. I thought, what will that mean to my life? I knew that would mean a complete change of lifestyle and direction. I said, God, I don't think I can live a holy and pure life for you. I've tried before, I've failed. Voice of God said, son, I'll help you. I lay there and thought, what would my friends think if I tell them that I've become a follower of God? I think he's flipped. I said, I don't care what my friends think. Peer group pressure has caused enough suffering and enough compromise in my life. I'm going to follow God whether any other man is or not. I lay there and realised if I've been dead that long, three minutes no oxygen to the brain, you will be a permanent vegetable. The fact that I could think and actually move my neck seemed a miracle in itself. As I lay there realising that if I've been dead that long, I may never walk again, I said, God, if you've given my life back, please heal me. I want to be able to walk out of this hospital and live a normal life. If you can't do that, I do not want to be a quadriplegic or a vegetable on a machine. Please take me back into heaven if you can't do that. As I lay there, he didn't take me back into his presence, but waves of his power and warmth that I'd sensed in the presence of him started to flow through me. My physical body started to feel warm, warmth, and like an electricity passing through me, and over the next four hours, I was completely healed. By this stage, I'd been wheeled into the main ward of the hospital. I was terrified to close my eyes and go to sleep, in case I disappeared somewhere. I walked out of the hospital the next day and said, God, what have I become? He said, son, you are a reborn Christian. I said, God, you know what I mean? What must I do? I got back to New Zealand and he said, son, you should read a Bible. I said, I don't have one. He said, your father has. Go and ask him for one now. I went and asked my father for a Bible. I had never read a Bible in my entire life. I'd seen one on an altar but never read one. I read in the next six weeks the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelations. My parents thought something had happened. <laughs> I began to question God. I said, God, what on earth took place? He said, in the ambulance you prayed a prayer. I said, that's right, Lord, I prayed the Lord's Prayer. He said, in Matthew 6, you prayed the prayer of salvation. I said, what? He said, son... Born again is to have your sins cleansed and forgiven. You give your life fully to me. John 3.3, you are born again. Romans 10 verse 8, he started to show me, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I said, God, that means I got saved, cleansed of my sin, right in the ambulance. He said, that's right. I said, well, why did I go into the darkness? He said, Acts 26 verse 18, there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, one ruled by Satan, one ruled by God. He said, son, had you not prayed the Lord's Prayer just before you died, you would have stayed there. But I chose to take you through the valley of the shadow of death and deep darkness, Psalm 23, and show you where you should have gone. I said, God, when I stood in that darkness, a brilliant light shone upon me. He said, yes, light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend. He said, those walking in darkness and the shadow of death have seen a great light. He said, I shone literally and drew you out, my presence. I said, I moved into a tunnel, God, what was that? He said, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, narrow is the way that leads to the kingdom of God and few are those who find it. I said, God, as I passed through that narrow passageway, I found waves of incredible light 
They were giving off an emotional feeling. What were they? He said, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace and joy. I said, God, how come people say that there are many ways into your presence? There are many roads that lead up to you, not just your way, Christian. He said, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I said, when I came out of the end of the tunnel, I saw the most spectacular line of radiance. I said, where was that in the scriptures? And I started to read. It says, he is surrounded by an unapproachable light. Then I moved into Revelations and I read and saw a picture of Jesus in his resurrected glorified form. It says here, I saw God and he was literally clothed in a robe which reached his feet. His head and his hair were as white as wool like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His voice was like the sound of many waters. He held in his right hand seven stars. His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. I fell and he said to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I said, God, that means that you are the resurrection and the life. He said, Yes, John 11, 23, 24. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who come to me shall no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As I continue to see more and more through the word of God, that Jesus Christ stood in his glorified heavenly form. In garments of white light, radiant, his light filled the universe. As I stepped past him, I said, God, what did I see behind you? He said, a new heavens and a new earth. I said, God, the river? He said, Revelation 22, the river of life. Those who drink from it shall never thirst again. The trees, the tree of life. As I continued to look, I could see that there was no more death in that place, no more suffering, no more war, no more sickness. I said, God, you gave my life back. I can hardly believe it but I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I plan and choose not to turn back. I desire to walk with you as closely as I can all the days of my life. I know that I know that I've seen the risen Saviour. Now some of you will have trouble with what I've just shared. If you think it was easy for me to have a vision or a dream, then I'll stand on 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Paul said, I know a man 14 years ago, whether he was in his body or out of his body, God knows. This man was caught up into the third heavens and saw things inexplicable that that a man is not permitted to speak. I only speak the things that God's permitted me to speak. I've seen many things, but I share what I believe He's shown me to speak. At times it's repetitious. At times it's hard to share over and over again. And yet I believe that God's given this experience to me to reach out to man and say, I love you. I don't judge you. I want all men to humble themselves, turn from their wicked and evil way, turn from the darkness and come to the light.
He desires that all men would come through the gates of glory. Jesus said, I am the door. Those who come through me shall go in and out, be saved and find green pastures. Jesus is the door to life at the end of the tunnel. He is the light of the world. He is the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of all the world. He has taken my sin away as I turn from it. He can take your sin away in a moment in time and wipe the slate clean, which is what's called reborn. Born again, a fresh start in life. It's as though you were just born for the first time in your life. Washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Death did not keep Jesus down. He rose. He was the first of the living. He rose from the dead. If you care to believe in him and follow him, you too, when you die, shall rise from the dead. Your spirit will go up into his presence. Will you go through the darkness like I did? No, I'm not preaching that. God chose to take me personally through that. Many, I believe, will go straight into the presence of his radiant light, which is where I believe I will go next time I die. I love him. His presence was not a one-off experience. I have had 11 years of the, literally, many, many times God has visited me and come to me and touched me. The power of his love and presence isn't just for when you die, it's for now. How many know you need love now? How many know you need the presence of God now? And God's presence can come to you in your own physical form and he will melt and restore and heal your heart. He is a gentle, loving shepherd of our souls. If you care to believe the simplicity of the gospel, you too can be saved. You too can start a life walking with Jesus as your saviour and soon coming king.